So today we're continuing our series called TBH, which stands for To Be Honest, where we're offering honest biblical responses to what those under 40 have told us are the most pressing issues in our world today. And today's topic is a deep one and a heavy one. Today we are discussing human rights and the equal treatment of all. We're going to be looking at God's word to address two questions. First, where do these ideas come from? And second, does the Christian faith help them or hurt them? A little girl asked her mother, Mom, where did humans come from? And the mother answered, well, God made us in his image. Later, the little girl asked her father the same question. And the father said, well, sweetheart, many years ago, we evolved from monkeys. Confused, the little girl went back to her mom and said, well, well, mom, how is it that you said we were made by God and dad said we developed from monkeys? And mom answered, well, sweetheart, it's very simple. I told you about my side of the family and dad told you about his. I share that joke because when considering the notion of human rights, your beliefs about, about origin, they matter a great deal, actually. Uh, the Christian faith teaches that, that all people have value and that all people deserve dignity. And this belief flows from our understandings of mankind's origins. Uh, take a look with me at uh, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So two things jump out at us from these verses. First, that mankind is made and that we are made in God's image. Now, whether you believe God made us in a literal six days or made us through uh, another longer process is secondary. What's important is the truth that he crafted and designed us and with certain attributes. You see, anything that's made has inherent value, at the very least by the one who made it. Uh, my son likes to paint and scribble and draw. And when he's finished a little painting, that thing matters to him. Even though sometimes I, and, and don't tell him this, I can't figure out what it is. But if he's just finished a work of art and, and I were to just take it and, and toss it in the trash, he would burst into tears. Why? Listen to me. Because that which is made matters. It has value in the eyes of the maker. And so if we are made by God, then we, all of us, have value and we matter to him. Uh, in the comments, give someone a shout out and say, hey, you matter. Go ahead. Now, to be made in the image of God means that every person also bears certain attributes. Attributes that, that nothing else in all of creation carries with them. Not the, the cutest of pets or the most glorious of mountains. Just us. Uh, God has put his thumbprint on mankind meaning he can see something of his reflection in us. Now, this is a big theological idea, but it boils down to this. To bear God's image means that humans were designed righteous, free, and able to flourish. God is good, 
and he only does good. And that was our design in the beginning. We were righteous. Likewise, God is free, free to think and to act and to do. And, and we are rational and capable of thinking and acting and doing. And God's glory is on display when he focuses his freedom and his righteousness on creating beauty and doing good. And the same is true for us. God's glory shines and our joy increases when we focus our freedom on that which is good and lovely and right. We flourish. And you see, that's where the notion of dignity comes from. We dignify other human beings when we honor them and their maker by ensuring their freedom to think and act and do and create, and we allow them to flourish and experience joy. So these two ideas, that all humans have value and that all deserve the dignity of freedom and joy, are universally celebrated in modern society. Christian or not, we all seem to cherish those two ideas. We've even enshrined them in our founding documents as a country. In the Declaration of Independence, it says, all mankind is endowed by the creator with unalienable human rights, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But let's be clear. The notion of human value and human dignity have uniquely religious Christian roots. Now you might ask, well, Matt, if, if this is how we're made, and if this is so cherished by us, then why do we so often deny one another rights, treat each other inequitably, and, and stomp on each other's dignity? And the simple answer from the Christian perspective, from the Christian perspective is sin. I mean, shortly after the beginning, mankind screwed up. And since then, we've seriously struggled with this whole rights and dignity and equality thing. So sin, or the rejection of God, entered the picture, and it messed up two things. It ruined that righteousness we were designed with, so that now we, we are no longer inherently able to do good and choose the godly and the good. Which then means that our expression of freedom and our pursuit of joy gets off track in all kinds of crazy ways. And the end result is things like selfishness and violence and greed and abuse and the Tiger King. We're a mess. And you see it right away in Genesis. Sin entered the picture and immediately mankind abused its freedom and perverted its pursuit of joy. Case in point, Cain and Abel. They're brothers. Cain gets jealous of Abel and so what does he do? He murders him. And then God goes looking for Cain to call him out. And God asks him about his brother and what happened to him. And listen to Cain's response. This is, this is really telling. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, is Abel's life my problem? Uh, is, are his rights and his joy and his dignity in some way my responsibility? And the answer, of course, is yes. We're called to love and protect one another. But here's the change. Sin has entered Cain's life, our life. And now, because we're disconnected from righteousness, we tend to exercise our freedoms and demand our dignity at the expense of somebody else's. And young people, that's what you're noticing. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're right to be worried about. It's Christian, it's biblical to be concerned that those with power might refuse to value and dignify those with less power. Because we are, in fact, one another's keepers. And so let me just say, so that 
there would be no doubt. When, when minorities are not given access to opportunity, they're being treated as if they aren't valuable, and they're being robbed of their freedom to flourish. When the poor are disproportionately arrested or convicted or killed, they're being treated as if they aren't valuable, and they're being robbed of their freedom to flourish. When anyone is being denied the freedom to think, to act, to do, and to experience joy according to God's design, then they're being treated as if they aren't as valuable as everybody else, and they're being denied their freedom to flourish. And every time that happens, it is a manifestation of human sin. Every time that happens, it is ungodly and unequivocally wrong. Period. Now, in order to understand how this is playing out in our day and age, we need to do a little bit of cultural analysis to understand how, how we are living out our rights in a way that is stomping on the rights of others. And it comes down to one thing, secularism. Uh, secularism is the removal of anything religious from public life. Any notion or reference to a maker, a creator, uh, to a God that we might be all accountable to is increasingly uncommon and not allowed in public life. And yet, though we are pushing the notion of God to the sidelines, we still, as a culture, very much try to hold on to the notion that people have value and that everyone should be treated with dignity. But with God out of the picture, we as a culture, we, we need a new reason for this value and a new motivation for this dignity. And so now, as a culture, rather than say, well, it's because we have a creator, what we now say is, it's because we have capacity. And this is a subtle but massive change. We now value those that can think, that can act, that can do, and can pursue flourishing. To get really deep, this started in the 1700s with Descartes, who famously said, I think, therefore I am. Those who are deemed as having the ability, the capacity to think, to love, and to produce, they're the ones who should be protected and dignified. And when capacity, rather than a creator, becomes the rationale for rights, it unlocks all sorts of abuse and indulgence. When this happens, we end up disregarding the people at the fringes, and we give one another license to just be devoured by desire. So those who are deemed as incapable of producing and thinking by the rest of us, they get abused and forgotten by us. Think of the, the very young, uh, the unborn. Uh, think of the very old. Think of the very different, the very poor. They suddenly become less than. And the absence of God means that there's no righteous influence, no guidance or accountability upon our freedom to flourish. So flourishing becomes about just indulging whatever your heart can desire and your mind can justify. And this is not new. Uh, this happened in Rome. It's what happened in the time of the judges in the Old Testament. Listen to this. See if this sounds familiar. In those days, there was no king in Israel, no public presence of God. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what do we do about this? Well, if the underlying problem is sin and the loss of God's voice upon the exercise of our freedoms— then the answer has to be the restoration of God's voice and the forgiveness of our sin or, or a renewed focus on Jesus. You knew I was going to say that, right? 
Go ahead and write, I knew it in the comments if you called it. He's going to say the answer is Jesus. But it's true. Let me show it to you. So God's voice needs to be restored to public life by people of faith. So that God's heart and God's designs for our flourishing can guide our freedoms. And this should be done with gentleness, humility, with with love and respect. Not with anger and picket signs and bullhorns. No one responds to that. I don't know of a single person who's ever been argued into acknowledging God. Ever. No, this is about laying hold of the opportunities that we have to remind our own children and our friends and our co-workers through conversation that we are all made, that, that all of us matter, and that there's a blueprint for beautiful living. And then these same people seeing you, you, driven by your faith, not just voting or posting and acting to protect yourself, but leveraging your freedom and finding your flourishing in giving, helping, and advocating for those that we are tempted to overlook and abuse. That's how God's voice gets back. Through us, God's people speaking his name and looking out for the weak, those who don't have as much capacity, looking out for them in love. Likewise, it's about those of us who are baptized followers of Jesus, leaning hard and holding tightly to our identity as forgiven sinners loved by Jesus. The forgiveness of Jesus forces us to radically refocus on human values and human dignity. Jesus lived and died and rose again for everyone, everyone, black, white, left, right, rich, poor. And in forgiving me, He shows me that I'm no more sinful and no less loved than anybody else. The forgiveness of Jesus equalizes. Those who are perfect, they get humbled. Those who are abused get elevated, and we become one. Likewise, we believe that through faith in Jesus, our relationship and our righteousness are reestablished. God then sees us as good and promises to guide us in what it means to truly be free and to truly flourish. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says these words in the Gospel of John. Uh, Read this with me out loud. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When the church takes this seriously, when they hold tight to the forgiveness of sins, and they see themselves as lovingly representing the voice of God in the world, it changes the world. Study history. The early church, filled with faith in Jesus, changed the world. How? They they protected life on the fringes. They protected the unborn. They protected the widow. They protected the poor. And they went out of their way to protect them. And then they'd welcome them into their family of faith. And and when they gathered for worship, they treated everyone, like everyone, even the worst of sinners, as equals. And they would sit together and eat together and worship together. And and you have to realize that this time in history, no one did this. No one. And they also lived according to a, a peculiar ethic, one that led to deep meaning and joy. Money, they shared it. Sexuality, they honored it. Privilege, they leveraged it for love. And it made the world stop and say, wow, look at how they value others and they use their freedoms. Now you might be thinking, Matt, but I thought religion got in the way of everyone's rights. I thought religion was the problem. No doubt lots of religious people have done lots of horrible things. But know the truth. 
Those who, who hold to the forgiveness of Jesus historically have led the fight for the flourishing of others, and history bears that out. For example, Christianity played the central role in abolishing the slave trade. Historian Rodney Stark notes that as early as the fifth century, anti-slavery theology was formed and shared among Christians at a time when quite literally no one was advocating for its end. And, and it continued for 1,300 years until people like William Wilberforce in the UK and, and John Woolman in the US, men of faith, started to sway politics and policies toward abolition. And, and the same is true with the civil rights movement. Were there lots of cultural Christians against it? Absolutely. But its founding and its fuel was the Christian faith. You can make an argument that the civil rights movement was, in many ways, a religious revival, led by a preacher, no less. Just listen to the words of Dr. King. He, he didn't call people to some godless secular ideal. No, he called Christians back to their Bibles, back to their Jesus, and to be more faithful to their faith, which says, we're made in the image of God, all are valuable, and all deserve dignity. This is a significant issue for, for those who are under the age of 40. They don't want to be party in any way to treating someone as less than human or robbing them of their God-given right to bear his image, to be free, and to flourish. And what I want to say is that if you care about such things, the church is not the last place to be but in the church and close to Jesus is the best place to be because these things come from him and we are refocused on them by him. And do you know what he would say if he were here right now? He'd say the best way to be about this, to fight for this, is not simply by taking a stand and making headlines, although sometimes that's necessary. It's not just by getting active in politics and lobbying for your party, although that has a role, it's part of the equation. It's not by passionately discussing it in philosophy class or with your ethics professor, however stimulating that might be. And it's certainly not by posting articles on Facebook and making your opinion known on Instagram. No, the best way to fight for this, to be about this, is to believe what we've discussed about this. And then to look around and see who is near you who is your neighbor? Who is your brother? And love them in light of this in your little corner of the world. Value them, dignify them, fight for them. And when you fail, know that you yourself, you are lifted up and loved by Jesus. He is your keeper. And then look at your neighbor and no matter their color, their class, their beliefs, their lifestyle, lift them up too. Because you you are theirs. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a heavy and deep topic. Father, I ask that you would allow the words that, that I've shared and the, the scriptures that we've read to, to take root deeply in our hearts so that long after the service is over, we might continue to wrestle with them and ultimately be transformed by them. Help us to believe even more than we did prior to today that all of us have value and everyone deserves dignity and open our eyes to see who we might be tempted in our little corner of the world to overlook. 
and help us to lift them up and to be their keeper and to protect their rights and, and to help facilitate their flourishing in some small way, even through just some small act of kindness, Lord. And motivate us to be your loving voice in this world so that we are not guided in our freedoms simply by our guts, but we are guided by you so that we might experience tangible joy and deep meaning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.